and certainly health care, big part of the news, big part of the conversation, expecting hopefully a health deal any time between the provinces and the federal government, and uh, certainly that will uh, be a big day when that comes down. But, you know, a missing part of the conversation, I think, is the, the missing role or the role of the public sector and the role that they play and the politics that arises whenever their livelihood or power is threatened. And they're likely very threatened right now, which is why there's so much pushback and why we see so many different narratives circulating. A lot of them would be the start of an American-style health care, which this is not. But the unions, you know, look, they have enormous power. They know that, which is why, you know, the political parties pander to the vote. Albeit at the federal level, Justin Trudeau has, in fact, called Doug Ford's plan innovative, which caught some off the guard. But as my next guest writes in a National Post op-ed, quote, Premier Ford's plan is bold because it breaks the status quo, not because it breaks new medical ground. It weakens the corporatist-style iron triangle that exists between government, doctors, and unions, which ensures that each party holds a veto over policy, thus maintaining the status quo, unless all parties benefit. Dr. Sean Watley is a practicing physician, also senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, and also author of, quote, When Politics Come Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. All right. So, I mean, a lot of the pushback that we have heard, you know, it's the American-style healthcare. We get the, you'll be charged your credit card, or, you know, doctors and nurses are going to leave, mostly nurses. But a lot of this is is just that. It's spin. There's a lot of politics at play, but the politics we don't talk about is that of the public sector union. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this, to be clear, this is a shift of services from hospitals out into the community. And we've been doing that shift since the 1970s. 1976, mm-hmm. hospitals used up 45% of the, of the spending on healthcare. By 2020, it was down to 26%, in part because we've done more outpa- outpatient surgery and you don't have to go to the hospital for every x-ray and that sort of thing. What this does is continue that shift that kind of stalled about 15 years ago, because as the hospital sector shrinks, all of a sudden a whole bunch of vested interests lose power over that spending. And so this is a final way to get publicly funded services, publicly funded services. You're not paying with your credit card out into the community where they can truly innovate on the way care is provided. Yeah, um, but the bottom line is, you know, the unions will fight for their workers, their members. I mean, that's the union, the, the job of the union brass. They want to get the best deal. And so they're not necessarily thinking about the, the you know, the, the bigger picture. Their job is to get the front lines um, the best deal, which might not necessarily work for the system as a whole, let alone the public at large. Well, totally. People probably don't know that hospitals are almost 100% unionized, yeah. close to 98% last time I checked. In the broader public sector, unionization rates were around 71% in 1997. They're up to 74% in 2021. So the public sector unions are a very, very different beast than the private sector. Private sector, 97, around 20%, 19%, it's down to 13.8% in 2021. And the difference between the two types of unions is that in the private sector, if the union is too demanding, the company will go bankrupt. They'll go out of business. That doesn't happen in the public sector. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when Jagmeet Singh says, you know, he'll make it easier (laughs) for everyone to unionize and he'll only support the universal care, that that to me is the politics playing right to the unions because they're also a very big voting block, which is why things get so, I think, political. 
um, in this conversation, which is why we never have the conversation. But here we are having it. And I, I look at it and say, the unions have to be part of the solution if they want this to work. Yeah. And we have to differentiate people who yeah. are union members versus these giant union, uh, very, very wealthy organizations. Union members are good people. They're working hard. And furthermore, when unions started, there's some, there's good things to be had with community spirit and esprit de corps. And hey, let's get together and do the best we can for the patients here. We've lost that with these gigantic public sector unions. And this is one major piece of the puzzle that's being addressed in this change. But we also have a lot of associations, whether they're nurses and or doctors. Everyone's kind of got their own political, um, I don't want to say agenda, but they've all got their own kind of interests that they push. And and so, again, you get that pushback. And in the middle are Canadians saying, like, am I going to have to pay? Am I going to lose my health care? Like, what's going on? So there's a lot of mixed messaging. And I think a lot of it is the politics just within the system itself. Huge. Patients are not going to have to pay. So we have to say that about 20 times just so people remember this isn't paying with your credit card. But you mentioned doctors. It's absolutely the same thing for doctors. So right now, doctors fight. It's called income relativity, right? The radiologists and the anesthetists and the surgeons, they make much more than the pediatricians and the and the psychiatrists. Well, when you open the floodgates on trying to catch up on those 20 million services that we are backlogged over the pandemic, all of a sudden, and surgeons are going to be operating tons more than they are now. Well, that's where service that's where surgeons make the most money is in the operating room. Same anesthetists, they don't make money if operating rooms aren't open. The way Canada saves money on healthcare is by limiting the number of hours operating rooms are open. So we're switching that paradigm and so to your point, we're driving a huge wedge between doctors too. Yeah. And then the administration, I mean, the administration costs when you look at hospital costs are enormous. Enormous. Um and I, you know, I'd like to take some of that money and put it into the frontline uh, care. Uh, having said that, um, isn't there a way, doctor, that we should be changing the way that we, um, you know, fund hospitals? Shouldn't there be a little more competition? Instead of handing each hospital a blank check, should there not be more accountability, you know, as to how many patients you're processing, how many are getting diagnostic on time, how many are on waiting lists? I mean, you know, instead of just handing the money over, there should, I think, be, you know, earn it. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. I wish you could ask that question three times. You're talking about activity-based funding. We've been trying to do this for 20 years in Canada. There's a great review out just published in 2022 looking at Quebec and Ontario, our experiences with activity-based funding or pay-for-performance or patient-based funding. So in other words, paying hospitals when they actually do work instead of just existing. You know, hospitals would be great except if it weren't for all the patients you have to take care of. Whereas independent health facilities, they die if they don't provide high quality care that is efficient, effective, safe. And so it switch, it, we finally achieve activity-based funding for all of these services that we've been unable to get in hospitals. And the reason is hospitals are motivated to show the ways activity-based funding could fail. That's not the same as trying to make it work. And right. this is what is innovative about this plan. Right. Um, but again, and, uh, and part of the health deal at the federal level, if we ever get one uh, done, and I, we should in the, hopefully next week or two, but part of that is these strings attached, which would be, you know, sharing of data and the accountability, which, you know, it's a no brainer. We're spending trillions of dollars on health over the last uh, few decades. And I think, yeah, we want to know where the money's going to make sure that it is actually following patient A, you know, you know Dr. Watley has to go get a checkup, you know, and it, the money follows the, you know, the patient all the way through. We don't get that right now. 
Um, but there's also no data sharing. So if you have that accountability and that transparency, will that fix things or is it just another avenue to kind of watch things? So I agree that we need to hold people accountable for performance. The question is, who do we hold yeah. accountable? Right now, the federal government wants to run healthcare. So Minister Duclos's quote unquote, five step uh, accountability or strings attached uh, targets that he promoted in the spring are actually about 15 or 20 separate targets, which looks to me like the dog chasing the healthcare car. And now they want to catch that car. Once they catch that car and say, okay, we want to run healthcare. That's essentially what the feds are saying. They don't know how to run healthcare. So I agree on accountability, but who's accountable? I suggest the provinces should be accountable or your local hospital should be accountable. Not the feds should not be dictating accountability. I think that's a, a mistake. Yeah, uh, no question. We've got enough hands in the, in, in the pot right now, cooks in the kitchen on this one. Um, what more then, if, if, if Doug Ford is doing this and he's driven the wedge through, what more in your mind, and I think there's probably a thousand things more that need to happen, but what more needs to happen and what direction do you want to see him go in order to actually truly get solutions? Yeah, so two big risks right now for Doug Ford. Number one is if he he mentioned he's going to get new legislation. Yeah. Legislation inevitably carry picks up a whole bunch of lint as it goes mm -hmm. through the you know the the different readings and finally gets to committee. He may create a new behemoth of yeah. gigantic legislation that just crushes us. The second thing is he has to watch out for the regulatory state. So the regulatory state, all the regulators and civil servants that go around making sure everything's done quote unquote right, they will metastasize and start taking over these IHFs and dictating how to manage those those uh, little companies. It's like saying we're going to manage Tim Hortons because we decided to pay for all the coffee. So he has to guard against those two things, fat legislation and bloat of the regulatory state. If he can get over those two things, this could be transformational for Canadians. Yeah, it's 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 that it's a sledge of bureaucracy and the agencies and all these things that are formed after the fact that end up causing a lot more problems. All right, doctor, I very much appreciate you joining to uh, chat with us on this. Thank you. My pleasure. That is Dr. Sean Watley, and you can read his op-ed in the uh, National Post. It's, a, it's an interesting conversation, a big part of the conversation. The unions have to be part of it, or, or it's, you know, just going to become a very ugly, big political fight.